This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Condig, Managing Editor, Crystal Ball. And I'm Miles Cohen, the Associate Editor. So the costs of elections have been on the rise and just adjusted for inflation. The 2022 congressional elections are set to cost $9.3 billion this year compared to $6.7 billion in 2018. And the average cost to win a seat has doubled since 2004 adjusted uh, for inflation. The crystal ball has been uh, doing some research. Kyle Kondik has been doing some research on outside spending in the races. The vast majority of the districts that the crystal ball rates as the most competitive, those in the toss-up or leans category, have seen at least some outside spending so far. Um, It's no surprise that the races receiving the most outside spending have been rated by the crystal ball as either toss-up or leans. Kyle, I wonder if you can talk about how you define outside spending and if you can speak to how and where outside spending is influencing your assessment of races. Yeah, so there are primarily there are kind of this is just for the house. Basically this there's the same uh sort of format for the Senate in that this current iteration of campaign finance law and after some important Supreme Court decisions from the last decade or so about uh, about uh, uh, campaign spending you have uh, you know in the house you've got essentially the kind of official uh, outside spending groups um, the Democratic congressional campaign committee and the National Republican congressional committee but then you've also seen the rise of basically kind of shadow versions of those two groups um, uh, congressional leadership fund on the Republican side and House majority PAC on the on the on the Democratic side and the difference between those you know those groups and the sort of official groups is that um, the unofficial groups can can essentially raise unlimited money from anyone. So you know if I wanted to write a ten million dollar check to a congressional leadership fund, I could just you know I could just do that if I wanted to. Um, whereas you can't really do that for the NRCC or the DCCC. And so you've had these outside groups that are basically connected to. Um, uh, House leadership, uh, you know, to Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, and Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic leader in the House, um, and they've sort of become the heavyweights in outside spending. And so far, you've got outside spending in close to sixty districts. Um, the, the districts are overwhelmingly held by Democrats, which I think tells you about sort of the the battlefield. Um, uh, and also, they're they're pretty overwhelmingly districts that Joe Biden won in the last uh, in the last presidential race. Um, obviously, the, the you know the districts have changed uh, since 2020 because of uh, redistricting. But you know, with the House very closely contested, the Democrats um, only won a five seat majority in 2020. The fact that there's so much spending going on in so many Democratic held districts, I think, tells you about sort of the the kind of Republican advantage in the in the overall um, playing field. And you know, most of the races we see as the most competitive have already seen some spending. So far, you know, presumably by the end of the actual election season, uh, you're going to see all those districts, or almost all of them, um, get some spending. And again, this is this is big money. I mean, we're talking about you know hundreds of millions of dollars just from these groups. That doesn't even bring into account um, what the actual candidates raise and spend. Uh, did you find anything in your research that would show what the money is being spent on? Is it primarily being spent on ads? 
Yeah, most of this money is going to TV ads, although you you know you do have uh, like mailers and other things that end up getting caught up in the outside spending. But um, the bulk of it is still traditional television advertising. I think there's an increasing amount going to you know to digital advertising, um, but a lot of it's still traditional television, which is you know could kind of be inefficient in that, particularly on on broadcast, because if you're in like a big market like Chicago or New York City or Los Angeles, you know, a lot of people are seeing those ads who can't actually vote in those races, at least on the um, on the House side. And so, um, you know, I think over time, this will probably become more targeted. And, you know, the other thing is it's, you know, more and more people are going to, you know, streaming services and other things like that. And, um, you know, I think just the the, the places where um, the ad buyers have to place ads, it's, it's just getting more and more sort of diverse over time if you really want to try to be able to reach as many people as you can. So Kyle, you continue to believe that the Republicans are favored to take control of the House of Representatives. And, you know, you, you're part of the, the rationale behind this assessment is outside spending. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more um, about what you found in terms of where Republicans are targeting their outside spending. Uh, yeah, again, it's, it's, you know, it's overwhelmingly in, in currently uh, Democratic districts. Um, you know, it also seems like Congressional Leadership Fund, sort of the big, the biggest outside Republican group, is probably going to have a, an advantage over the, you know, the, the the Democratic groups just in terms of the overall money spent. You know, what we'll to take a, take stock of it at the end of the election, and you know that in some ways will help to sort of make up for the fact that a lot of the Democratic House incumbents. Um, have significant fundraising advantages um, of their own, although some political science experts basically think that um, challenger fundraising is, is more important and, you know, challengers don't have to outraise incumbents. It's helpful if you do, um, but challengers just need to make sure they've got enough money to get their own message out and to build sort of the name ID that the incumbents already have. And, you know, my sense is that there are enough Republicans who are doing it. I mean, Republicans do have some really poorly funded kind of dud candidates in some races, but in a lot of other races, they've got perfectly acceptable candidates. Um, and, uh, so, you know, again, if it, the democratic incumbents generally have a fundraising advantage, but it may be that when it's all said and done, the Republicans have a, uh, you know, advantage in the outside spending. Yeah. I was looking at, um, some center for responsive politics data, um, today, uh, you know, because of the research that you've done and, uh, you know, we, we also kind of track, you know, how other political action committee contributions, um, where, you know, where they're going. Um, and, and by and large, you know, it's the center for responsive politics data, which is based on FEC filings, shows that a huge advantage, um, you know, to incumbents, as you just mentioned. Um, and I think, you know, most interest, most interesting is just the rise of money coming from single issue groups or ideological based groups as well. Um, and they're, you know, primarily funding incumbents. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, you, you, you do have, you know, I just talk focus on these sort of bigger outside groups, but there are others, you know, like club for growth, for instance, is a big one on the sort of the conservative side, you know, they end up spending a lot of money too, sometimes in primaries, but also in general elections, like one race where club for growth is really involved that other groups necessarily aren't, or, or aren't necessarily involved is this sort of unusual uh, Senate race out in Utah where, um, 
Uh, you have Mike Lee, the Republican incumbent, who's being opposed by Evan McMullen, who is um, an independent candidate. There's no Democratic candidate in that race. And um, uh, McMullen is sort of a, a kind of an anti-Trump Republican, basically ran for president in 2016. But, you know, the the, the part of the reason why the, the groups will sort of make these big announcements about where they're spending is um, so that the other groups know, you know, what's going on and, and uh, where they should be spending, because the, the groups really aren't allowed to actually uh, uh, cooperate with one another and not allowed to cooperate with candidates either. Um, so you, you know, you, you, uh, um, um, a lot of the communications that's done is basically right out in the open, um, because that's the way that they can, they can basically talk to one another without breaking the law. It's interesting that you mentioned the club for growth. <laughs> um, because one of the things I saw today is they reported spending more than 17 million, um, directly backing candidates, uh, who called the 2020 election rigged um, or, or claimed voter fraud. Um, and I think that's quite interesting, especially given, um, you know, they tend to be more limited government. Um, and initially, I think they were concerned about those who were talking about election fraud. And yet now they're, they're spending money to back those candidates. Yeah, I mean, you know, the club for growth, I think is generally known for supporting some of the most conservative Republicans who um, I think, you know, they care most about, I think, economic issues, but sometimes the people who are most conservative on economic issues also are the most conservative on other things and might be among the most pro Trump. And the club for growth was not particularly crazy about Trump early on, but um, they sort of came around on him. And so, you know, again, if you're going to be supporting um, the most conservative candidates in, in some places, particularly in competitive places, those are also some of the people who probably are the ones who were, uh, you know, most questioning of the, of the 2020 results. So there just ends up being a lot of overlap. So Kyle, you've also made some rating changes this week, especially in the 9th District of Ohio and some Oregon races. I wonder if you can talk about the rating changes and where you see con- where you see control of Congress landing if the 24 seats rated as toss-ups by the crystal ball are split. Yeah, you know, our thinking right now is a Republican gain is somewhere in the teens. Um, I could sort of see that maybe a little likelier to inch up for the Republicans as opposed to inch down. Um, there have been some signs that, you know, that Republicans are sort of regaining a little bit of the momentum that maybe they lost after the, uh, the Dobbs abortion decision. But I do think the house broadly speaking is sort of more competitive than maybe we would have thought six months ago. Um, so in, in, you know, the, the rating changes we made recently, um, I think it reflects kind of a big playing field, but you know, you've got some open seats that Biden won by double digits where you've seen a lot of spending on uh, ad spending, like those Oregon seats. Um, you know, we moved those to a more competitive category, but you're also seeing that Republicans have had some candidate recruiting challenges in some of these states and some of these districts. Um, Marcy Kaptur, long serving Democrat in Northwest Ohio. Um, she occupies a Trump district, but we actually look at her as a favorite right now in her race in part because of the um, weaknesses of her opponent, a Republican named J.R. Majewski, who um, beat um, some more credentialed Republicans in the primary, but um, has been caught up in some basically not telling the truth about his military service, um, which is uh, the Associated Press has exposed in, in, in uh, the last couple of weeks. Miles, you have also written about the gubernatorial rating changes, especially in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and it's gotten a lot of attention, especially on Twitter. Um, You moved both of those uh, ratings to likely Democratic. I wonder if you can talk about those changes and what influenced the the crystal balls assessments of those races. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are two races that... uh 
no, I mean, given the year that we're in, uh, a Republican, or at least a slightly Republican year, you know, these are contests that the Republicans would have had or should have had very good chances of winning. Um, as I said in the article, Pennsylvania, if, uh, you know, we have the, um, we have Democratic candidate in Pennsylvania, State Attorney General uh, Josh Shapiro, um, as a favorite over uh, State Senator Doug Mastriano, who has repeatedly questioned the 2020 election. Um, he's not running, you know, much of a campaign from what we can gather. Um, you, you know, it's, it's, you know, one one of the things that Shapiro has been working on uh, is building support from Republicans who are going to, you know, maybe even some voters who are going to vote for Shapiro for uh, governor, but Oz for Senate uh, kind of split their tickets. Um, you know, this would be if 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 the Democrats pull this off, uh, this would be the first time since the 1840s. Uh, that the Pennsylvania Democrats win three straight governor's elections there. You know, just to give you some context there, you know, back in the 1840s, the Republican Party didn't even exist. It was the Democrats against the Whigs. You know, that's how long it's been since Democrats have been able to pull this off in Pennsylvania. And I think what's even more interesting um, is two of those three uh, wins for the Pennsylvania Democrats uh, would have been in 2014. That's when now Governor Tom Wolf won. Uh, that was a Republican-leaning year. Uh, and this could very well be another Republican year. So they've put together, or they could put together, this streak of wins, you know, mostly in years that you wouldn't expect to favor Democrats. And I think that shows how these governor's races um, are different. You know, similar story in... Um, in Michigan, you had Governor Whitmer become uh, somewhat of a national figure during the pandemic. Um, she was, you know, we, at the time, I think in 2020, uh, when when we would write about potential candidates that Joe Biden may choose for vice president, she was on our list. Um, and she got lucky in a sense that um, of the field that was originally going against her, uh, it really lacked a lot of big names, uh, no legislators, no congressmen opted to run against her uh, be because of one one of Michigan's um, arcane con kind of ballot rules uh, is there were several of her challengers who got booted off of the ballot um, and the Republicans were and ended up uh, with this Republican woman named Tudor Dixon. Um, she hasn't really... She hasn't really fundraised well, uh, certainly not uh, to the extent Whitmer has. Um, so, yeah, these are both sort of light blue states um, that we have um, that we're moving sort of more in the Democrats' direction, uh, sort of against the odds. So with these recent rating changes, that leaves just three states in the crystal ball ratings in the Leans Democratic category, Maine, Minnesota, and New Mexico, just one state, Georgia, in the Leans Republican category, and just five states in the toss-up category, Arizona, Kansas, Nevada, Oregon, Wisconsin. What should we be watching in these states? Yeah, so I would say of, I, I think this is a point we made in the article, you know, of those states that we have in the, uh, left in the Leans category for either side, 
Now, we don't see any of those as particularly we would say that all all of the seats all of the states that we have left in that leans category they're all more closer to the likely category than they are to the, the toss up category you know maybe some good news for the republicans um is i could very well see a situation where they run the table on all of our toss ups um it's you know, it's, it's uh that's something I could very well see happening. I mean, Governor, um, we they have two incumbents there with Governor Tony Evers in Wisconsin and Laura Kelly in Kansas. Um, Evers has been basically even in his polls, if not a little behind. Um, and Kelly, you know, we uh, <laughs> it's sort of funny because. I've seen very few polls of Kansas. You know, we've ironically gotten more polls out of Texas, which is a state that we rate as likely Republican. You know, it seems like every other day we we get a poll of the Texas governor's election, but we don't have anything, anything of Kansas, which is much closer from what we can, can tell. Um, and there are other instances like Oregon. Oregon, other than Washington State, has had the longest streak of electing only Democrats for governor. I think in Oregon they've had Democratic governors since um, since 1986. You know, one thing we saw is you know all those types of po- political streaks. You know, they all end at some point. You know, uh, before 2021, it seemed uh, the Democrats had won something like 13 straight statewide races in Virginia since 2009. You know, it seemed like that could go on forever, but it didn't. You know, they in in Virginia we elected all Republicans last year. So, um, you know, I've I've um, you know I've I I kind of do sense that you know if one party is in power for long enough. Uh, they can sort of get complacent, you know. In Oregon, also, an, another odd dynamic there is we have this three-way race where there is Republican, a Democrat, uh, and an Independent who used to be um, basically a more moderate Democrat. One thing I would watch for in that Oregon race uh, is Independent candidates, you know, just because they don't have the uh, typical party infrastructure that the two party nominees have. That's part of the reason why, as the election gets a little closer, they tend to underperform their polls. So uh, that could be an interesting factor. Miles, you said something about the lack of polling coming out of Kansas. And I just wanted to sort of uh, emphasize that point and the importance of why what you all do is so important because you're not just relying on the polls and your assessments of the ratings. And I think Kyle made that point um, in his crystal ball piece this week and, and also on Twitter. Okay, one final question, Kyle, for you. I understand you're subjecting yourself to watching a whole lot of ads this week. I definitely rate that as taking one for the team. What are you finding in the content of the ads, and what do they tell us about the races? Yeah, so I watched um, uh, basically two weeks worth of TV ads, and so there was it was almost 350 ads, roughly split down the middle um, between Democratic 
candidates and groups and Republican candidates and groups. And, you know, the themes are basically what you'd expect. I mean, the Democrats are really hammering the abortion issue. The Republicans aren't there. It comes up a handful of times, the Republican ads, but Republicans are basically shying away from it. The Republicans are much more focused on tying Democrats to Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, which is sort of a familiar kind of message for uh, the opposition party in a midterm to kind of nationalize the race and try to tie the uh, the president's party candidates to the unpopular leaders of, of, uh, of their party. Um, you know, crime, I think, generally speaking, has come up. And, you know, that's one other takeaway, you know, whatever you think about it is that um, I think in the aftermath of the, you know, the murder of George Floyd and the protests in um, summer of 2020, that it seemed like there was kind of a, a moment for um, kind of reassessing policing and 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 uh, um, reforming policing, and you know, I, it, it certainly feels from the advertising like that moment has passed because um, the Republicans are sort of hammering Democrats on crime, featuring a lot of law enforcement people in those ads, and the Democrats are responding um, with their own law enforcement messaging, a lot of law enforcement in their ads. Um, and, you know, they're basically trying to defend themselves against the idea that they would want to try to defund the police or that sort of thing. And kind of taking a stronger kind of pro law enforcement message themselves, which I guess on one hand is sort of predictable for political advertising, but um, it certainly feels a lot different than maybe it felt a couple summers ago, um, uh, you know, in, in, in the wake of, of George Floyd and a lot of the, the protests that happened, it seems like we sort of the pendulum has maybe swung back more toward the kind of uh, um, uh, kind of the, the sort of the harder edge, I guess, of, of law enforcement and sort of being, quote, tough on crime and that sort of thing. I mean, it's just, it just it really sort of just screams out um, from the ads that you see really on both of the Republican and Democratic sides. I mean, Kyle, something I was thinking about as I'm watching a few of these ads, specifically you know, in contests like Pennsylvania and, uh, and Wisconsin for Senate, now it seems like some some of the advertising could be straight out, out of the 1988 election. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, also... To, you know, to the extent that there, it, it, there seems to be some polling movement in both Wisconsin and Pennsylvania toward the Republican candidates in those races. And so, you know, Ron Johnson, who we've basically always favored in Wisconsin, he's gone, you know, he's gone from being down to probably leading by a small amount. And in Pennsylvania, um, where we still see John Fetterman, the Democratic candidate, is a small favorite, um, you know, Fetterman's lead, while it still seems to exist, and I don't think Oz, Dr. Oz has led in any of these polls, um, you know, Fetterman's lead doesn't seem to be as big as it, as it once was. And in both of those states, you're seeing, again, pretty aggressive Republican attacks on, on crime matters. And some of it has to deal with um, Fetterman's position on, I believe it's like the, the state's like parole board. And then also um, some of the things that uh, Mandela Barnes, a Democratic candidate, has said about, uh, um, you know, b- about law enforcement and sort of acu- saying that he's, uh, you know, supportive of the fund, the police, which he's fought, you know, said he isn't, but you know, the, 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 there, there is, you know, video of him talking about that, that the Republicans have used. And so, you know, if you, if you see the Republicans end up winning both of those races, I think the lesson that you'll take from those two high profile races is that the Republicans, you know, got the Democrats on crime issues and that will have some sort of impact, I think on, on 
how Democrats sort of want to run these races in, in the future. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, uh, um, it, it's, a, it's pretty, it, it's, it, it, it seems to be like a pretty, pretty conservative messaging on law enforcement and really not just from Republicans, from, from Democrats too, are trying to kind of inoculate themselves from, from Republican uh, crime messaging. Well, Kyle and Miles, thank you both so much for keeping your eye on the crystal ball for us and look forward to reading more about the ad content and hearing more from the crystal ball next week. Thanks, Kara. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.